The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 103 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus, along with my co-host, the CISO of BitGo, Tom Pagelayer. One size all opinions expressed in the show are my own and not my present or past employer, so I've never disclosed any sensitive intelligence or privilege to a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I remind our listeners, you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show, get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. HUB.com. So it was a great show last week with former McKinsey and Goldman Sachs executive and current independent consultant Dorothy Hill, who joined my good friend and guest host Andrew Benillo to discuss the challenges of protecting yourself and your organization against cybersecurity threats. And then they had a discussion that on both the personal and the enterprise level, which I thought was really cool because. As much as we worry about cybersecurity in our jobs at work, I think a lot of people who listen to the show are probably in the cybersecurity industry, in the cybersecurity profession. There's nothing more important than protecting our children and our families at home, you know, from the plethora of uh, cybersecurity threats that, that are out there. So, oddly enough, I know plenty of uh, cybersecurity executives who are experts in this profession, um, and they pay very little attention to practicing sound security techniques at home. You know, we. We always talk about it uh, when we're having uh, a dinner or, at, uh, you know, we're at an event or, you know, what goes on in, at home and how much uh, the, uh, that, to me, that security mindset translates to personal lives. And maybe it's just because, you know, you're doing it every day, you know what I'm saying, at work. Uh, maybe just sometimes you just want to get away from what you're, all that. And, 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 but, you know, there's definitely something to be said for having a, a good security posture at home, I think. And, making sure that, you know, you know what your kids are doing on the internet and that, and that sort of thing. So it's a great reminder for all of us that are in the profession and do this every day as well. Uh, Hill also unpacked the complex nature of the current cybersecurity market, the skills needed to navigate the cybersecurity, uh, cybersecurity career, and, and the diverse opportunities that are currently present in the global cybersecurity industry. And for the, the, all the females out there listening to the show, Hill's a great role model uh, and what she has been able to do and what she says about how she navigated her career and, and she engages through market today as a very senior a female executive in the cybersecurity industry really is quite inspiring to listen to her speak. So she was a, a fantastic guest to have on the show. And she also discussed the evolution of bad actors, how emerging encryption technologies have changed the game, as well as the role of standards and certifications in a mature cybersecurity program. So this was all, all this and, and basically topped off what was just another great, great episode. That's Dorothy Hill on episode number 102 of Task Force 7 Radio. Make sure you check it out. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage and you can find all the TF7 radio episodes at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is a most impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. And of course, we have our news section as well, where you can check out all the latest cybersecurity news and news on Task Force 7 radio. And you can even write comments on the different news articles and topics that we're talking about, which is always a lot of fun. So we're on at least 12 different playback mediums now, folks. We made it easy for you to find them all. Just hit the subscribe button at the top right of the homepage, 
and you will see the entire selection of playback mediums. And most importantly, you can subscribe to our show right from the TF7 Radio website, which is really the best way to stay connected to the TF7 family. This way, you'll get all the TF7 Radio updates right from the site. And as the site gets more robust, you'll get notified about TF7 extras and encore episodes like the one we just did last week. And I can't wait to see what is going to be happening in the next couple of weeks because I think this is going to be a huge month, huge month for TF7 Radio in October 2019. And so um, we're really excited about it. So check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, no matter what medium you're on, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. So we got a great guest for you this evening, folks. I mean, I'm really pumped up about this show. A former colleague of mine is going to be on with us. We're going to have the founder of Cyber Forensics as a security company and one of the most prolific cyber forensics experts in the world is going to be with us this evening. It's former Secret Service agent Gus Dimitrelos is going to be right here on Task Force 7 Radio. Gus is a rock star in the cyber forensics world. I mean, everybody who knows cyber forensics knows who Gus is. He conducts computer forensic investigations and provides expert courtroom testimony to the U.S. Department of Justice, the U.S. State Department, the U.S. Federal Defender's Office, and numerous state and local law enforcement agencies and private law firms and attorneys. As the former Alabama Director of Digital Evidence and co-founder of that lab, Gus offers his expertise in complex computer, cellular triangulation, and GPS cases throughout the world. Okay, so we don't use the word expert too lightly around here. Um, those of you who listen to the show know this. We, we might say, you know, we, we, we know experts and things like that, but actually to name a specific person, an expert on this show is kind of rare, right? It's a kind of a rare event. We've had some legal experts for sure on the show uh, that we've given the designation. But with regards to Gus, we have no reservation whatsoever telling you that he is one of the most talented computer forensic experts in the world, okay? Gus is, a certi is certified in the United States federal court as a digital evidence forensic expert. That's right, he is certified in court as an expert. And he has assisted the FBI, the ATF, DEA, ICE, and the US Secret Service in hundreds of digital investigations, computer and cellular forensic examinations, and reconstructing historical cellular data. So Gus is considered a premier cyber investigator, receiving worldwide notability, solving complex investigations for Hollywood celebrities, such as Lincoln Park and entertainment and law firms such as David Shapiro, Beverly Hills. This uh, investigation was actually featured in Wired Magazine and Esquire Magazine International. We're going to ask him about some of these cases that he's working. I mean, because that's where it really gets kind of cool, really gets exciting to hear sort of the inside view of the investigator that was responsible for handling some of these high profile investigations, right? And how computer forensics actually made a difference in the case and made a difference in the outcome of the case. And, and, uh, and many times was the right outcome to make sure that the right outcome uh, was, was what occurred. And so we're going to get into that with him. But Gus is also a subject matter expert on the evaluation prevention, interdicting, and investigation of acts of terrorism and has conducted cyber terrorism cellular forensic program evaluations for the anti-terrorism assistance program, U.S. Department of State. And his most recent evaluations, including overseas assessments of the program in the Middle East, in South America. So he's done a whole bunch of other things. He's done a lot of uh, things within the Secret Service itself. He coordinated over 100 domestic and international technical security surveys for Presidents William Clinton and George W. Bush and Vice Presidents Albert Gore and Dick Cheney, where only six special agents in the entire United States Secret Service are offered these types of coveted positions. So it's time to introduce this evening's special guests. It is my pleasure to welcome to the show, former Secret Service agent and founder of the company Cyber Forensics, Mr. Gus Dimitrelos. Gus, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Well, thanks, George. Long time, no talk. Hey, it's great to have you on. I know that you're really busy. Uh, you know, you got so much going on with the, with the company and the work that you do, and I know it's demanding. It's like a 24-7 job. But you've had a very, very storied career, as I went over in pretty great detail uh, before we started uh, the interview, and 
I just want to kind of start from the beginning and ask you a question about, were, were you a computer forensics expert before you joined the Secret Service and started doing forensic investigations? I mean, I should probably know this, you know, because I've worked with you in the Secret Service, but you've, been, you've had such a successful career and set the bar so high in this specific specialization. I was just wondering, did you learn everything about forensics while you're in the service, or did you know about it before you went in? Yeah, it's, uh, it's always a great question. Uh, you know, in 95, 1995, there was no such thing as, you know, cyber forensics, computer forensic programs. I was a Fort Lauderdale cop, and uh, I was one of the early ones that bought one of those black and white compact 486DX4s. It's a laptop, 10-pound laptop. I don't know if anybody remembers those. But I used to walk around with that. I used to jank. I was a janker. I was, you know, a command line guy with you know, DOS system, DOS 6.2 and 6.2.2. And, and uh, one day, uh, well, long before Tom Page was at the Secret Service office in Miami, I was walking down the hallway, uh, Jack Kippenberger. He was a uh, sack of the office. Uh, I used to smoke cigars, didn't care about government regulations. Uh, he stopped me in the hallway. <laughs> and, uh, he says, hey, you. I said, yes, sir. He says, you're going to computer school. I'm like, well, what is it? He goes, I don't know. You're the only one here with a laptop. He used to have that voice, you know, that, like, <laughs> that cigar voice. And so that's, uh, you know, so I went to RCMP. It was, you know, maybe you guys didn't even know that before even the Secret Service and the Treasury Department started the CIS program. Uh, they sent me to RCMP to be certified as a computer forensic expert. That was in 96. And uh, from there, it's just, you know, the development and the education and experience really brought me to where I am today. Wow. No, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. That's pretty interesting. So I, um, so I want to set the sort of a level set for all, all our audience right now in terms of what we're going to be talking about. So can you define cyber forensics, you know, computer forensics for me and define cellular triangulation in lay terms for our audience who might not be familiar with these types of areas of specialization? Yeah, absolutely. If you, if you look at it, we talk about sort of a macro approach and a micro, so granular to large, the satellite systems, the, uh, the, the cellular towers, the phones, cloud data, it's a combination. So the way, the way we approach cyber forensics is really dealing with computer systems, uh, Mac, Windows, Linux, uh, any system that has you know, an operating system that is usually for computing. Uh, the mobile device uh, world, where the, the escalation of technology and mobile devices is really just changed how we do our forensics. Uh, cellular triangulation has been around since 96, my first case was a murder case for Fort Lauderdale. I was with the Secret Service, but helping, I think it was Lauderdale was the, the police department. It was a murder case. Guy fled to Jamaica. We tracked him using cell phone data. That was my first case. And that was a murder case, and that had to do with cellular triangulation. Back then, the towers, RF technology, uh, that, that really allowed us to identify, you know, direction of travel, eliminate sites where a person could not be. Uh, it doesn't really give you a location of where a phone is, but it does eliminate or give you a sort of a, a direction of where the phone traveled to. In this case, it went to Jamaica. We were able to find him, uh, get him extradited, and bring him back. But cyber forensics really today does deal with a lot of components. And if you look at the world we live in, most of it has, has to touch a cloud component or a cellular component. And so we can't really just the old days where we really crippled ourselves with, with the static information of, you know, if, if a hash value changes on some digital data, meaning the digital fingerprint, if it changes, you can't, you can't trust the data. Uh, today, all data changes constantly. Uh, so the idea of a unique digital fingerprint on digital data no longer applies like it used to. Let's, let's talk about cellular triangulation a little bit. I remember it's almost like 20 years ago now. I can't believe how long ago it was, but we had... You know, there was this van. I don't know. We had a name for it. I don't remember the name. It was this van that drove around. We were doing the cell, the cell phone investigations. How, how are things changed today? I mean, how hard is it to do uh, cellular triangulation today to locate someone's uh, physical um, location using their cell phone signal? Sure. All right. That's real-time tracking. And, and it's a very, very clear distinction. Historical data, meaning when you place a call, uh, the other last week we called, we talked, if you were to pull my call detail records, right? not, not, not the right. toll records, not your billing records, call detail records, it'll give you the tower that you and I communicated off of. The vans, speaking specifically Robert Villanueva, who was on your show previously, uh, he was in Colombia, Bogota, Colombia, the embassy, and I went down there and set up the, what we call the van, the DEA vans, the tracking vehicles. Uh, for the DOS and Dahim, their version of the CIA and, and FBI. And so Robert really was instrumental in getting me down there to set up the program down there where we used vehicles that are we're equipped with, uh, you know, everybody knows now, Triggerfish. It was a secret for so many years, but we used these, these technologies to, to basically mimic a tower. And so we would allow the van to be 
use as a tower for a specific number so we can we can identify your signal strength so your reverse signal strength indication would tell us how close or how far you were and we just basically almost like a submarine we would zoom in on that signal wow so in terms of today compared to back in the day when we were doing it you know back in 2000 you know how hard is it is it how is it really easy to do now i mean is it just like almost uh, like almost garden variety to do it yeah, it's so, so much easier now because of the fact that all of the providers, and we're talking about, uh, let's, let's use Google as an example. A lot of these providers track your location, your location services, which you enable by, you voluntarily enable those. Uh, whether you're using TripAdvisor, whether you're using Maps, uh, whether you're taking photographs, that location data, which is embedded usually in your mobile device, that allows us with, with feet, with uncertainty, feet of where you are. Meaning not just... Uh, where the signal is communicating with the satellite, but also your your local Wi-Fi. So we, you know, again, we're talking about feet versus your cellular signal, which we talk about in terms of miles. Right. So so Tom and I were both computer forensic specialists in the Secret Service uh, with you. So we know uh, what the training's like. We know what it takes. What the program looks like. But can you describe for the benefit of our audience how hard is it to be become a computer forensic specialist? and eventually become the expert that you are today because you've really, you know, like I said before, raised the bar and took this sort of to a whole new level. I mean, you have a whole company around it and you, you're testifying all over the country and in various different courts as an expert on an ongoing basis. So how hard is it to, to do all this? I'm sure there's a lot of people that are interested in this field. The difficulty lies in your presentation. So your testimony is where the challenge is. It, cha- it challenges your your ability to recall. What we have today, we have what we call push-button forensics. It's great. They're great. The tools are great. I love them. People hate them. I love them because I know the back, you know, I, I understand how the tool works. I understand how the data is located, how to present the data. But if you're just going to jump into this industry and just use these tools and select a few check boxes and let the tool run and find the evidence, the challenge is going to come later on when you have to present. Finding evidence or finding deleted data or finding if evidence of someone being at the keyboard, digitally speaking, is, is pretty uh, definable. But when you get in front of a court and a jury and the cross-examination happens, that's where your talent lies. And I think that's where I have my little niche is where I love to testify. I love that role because I've seen it all. I've done it all. I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I've just been at it for so long. Right. So... You went and started your own company. I'm not really sure of the sequence of things. I mean, I know starting your own company is a really big deal. It's a big risk, especially coming out of the government. So when you left the Secret Service, did you, did you actually start your own company right out of the gate, or did you go to another company and work there first, or what, what, what happened after that? that? That last year, it was 2005, I said to myself, there has to be a need, you know, again, there has to be a need for what we do in the private sector. We're not in the yellow pages. You can't find us on the internet. This is back then. Um, there was a need early on to develop the Alabama Computer Forensic Lab. Now it's in Hoover, Alabama. So that was my first contract was with the state of Alabama, where, where I transitioned was to the U.S. Attorney's Office. So when I was in Alabama, the Southern District of Alabama, great U.S. attorneys there, Sean Costello, Greg Borenkirker, Maria Murphy, there was so many good ones down there that I worked with. So for 10 years straight, what I did was, again, as a private contractor, it was, it was unheard of at the time. I almost went back to government, but as a private contractor, working in the U.S. Attorney's Office and uh, helping them solve federal crimes. We did 177 federal cases in that 10-year gap, and I still testify for them. I just did this year as well, but not as much as I used to. Back then, there was a need for what we did, not only in the private sector, individual law firms or companies, but also the government didn't want to wait two years for forensic examinations to get done. So we were doing examinations every two weeks. We were pumping them out really quickly. Uh, certainly the Secret Service, you know, me, most people don't know that we are very fast at what we do and very good at what we do, but the volume of cyber cases that we, that we an, uh, investigate or analyze or, or solve is, is uncomparable by, to any other agency. I think we're the, one of the best or highest in terms of volume. So the volume is enormous in, in the agency. I, I definitely can attest to that. And then when you, when you left, obviously, you do this for a living every day. And so here you are, been doing this almost, I think, almost a quarter century now. How many cyber investigations and forensic examins, examinations have you performed over the last 24 years? I mean, do you have a number on it there? Yeah, it's funny when you say quarter century. I never really thought about it that way. But yes, 20, this is my 24th <laughs> year. Thanks, <laughs> George. Call me happy. Uh, well, yeah, you know, we, I wish there was a time where I started the calculation. I know it's over 3,000, 4,000, 5,000. It's, it's, it's a number I can't even 
I can't even figure out, you know, the last two years, the numbers have been really definable in terms of cases. I think I had 245 cases in the last two years, uh, two calendar years. Uh, and then in those cases, you know, you average from, you know, one phone to 17 devices. It, it varies. But, you know, the, the, the amount is thousands is the only way I can describe it. So with all those cases, uh, with all those cases and all those forensic investigations, do you have any idea in, you know, how many times you've testified in either classified or criminal and civil cases? Yeah, and all the uh, criminal, civil, and classified cases, it's been over 100 times, uh, and it, it includes, there's a large gap there where I was missing the depositions. I didn't really understand depositions. The grand jury's class are, are, are considered testimony, so it's over 100 times. So that's a, that's, a, that's a lot of cases. I mean, what types of cases are these that you're testifying in? Uh, some of them are notable, uh, you know, some of them are public, uh, some are like Thomas Drake. Thomas Drake is a classified case. I'm not going to talk about a classified matter, certainly, but Thomas Drake, certainly you can Google that case. That was a good case. Uh, another one was Harold Martin. Uh, you can Google that again. New story. You'll see my, um, my, uh, my, we did, we did what they were able to publish in the newspaper regarding that case. Uh, Harold Martin is the largest uh, data breach uh, theft I think uh, classified data in the world um, that just recently closed that case closed out criminal cases. We, we've seen technology crossover into traditional crimes. We always think cyber forensics is cyber crimes, data breaches, uh, you know, uh, counterfeiting or whatever has to deal with the fraud aspect using technology, but murder, kidnapping are probably one in two in terms of numbers of traditional crimes that I testify in or work on uh, because of the cellular component. So I want to get into some of these cases. We've got to transition to a commercial break right now, but stick right here with us, folks, because we're going to get into the cases that Gus worked and how his cyber investigation skills affected the outcome of these cases, and I think it's going to be really interesting. You're not going to want to miss it. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family on your favorite playback medium. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number seven, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much needed and much awaited for network. We're gonna solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors and then we'll be right back with our special guest, former Secret Service agent and founder of Cyber Forensics, Mr. Gus Dimitrelos. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at bountymail.com. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. 
with forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Synet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Synet, S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, former Secret Service agent and founder of Cyber Forensics, Mr. Gus Dimitrelos. So, Gus, when people think of computer forensics, I think they automatically think about breaches or tech crimes, you know, stuff you see in the news that's related to technology. But the truth of the matter is that computer forensics also plays a huge role in many different types of crimes, especially some of the most egregious and serious offenses out there. Um, Can you tell us about some of these cases that you have worked and how computer forensics played a role in helping to solve that case? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. You know, we, we, when we analyze data, computer data, cell phone data, uh, we look at the information as ones and zeros. So whether you're testifying for the defense or working on a defense case or the prosecution, I have a very unique position where in a month's time, I'll do both. So if right now I have a prosecution case, a murder case out of Tampa, and defense cases out of Fort Lauderdale. So the, the idea that, you know, for years, a lot of my friends are, looking at me sideways, of course, as law enforcement officers, you say, how can you do that? How do you jump into fence? I'm like, no, this is the easiest profession to be in to not lie or mislead. It's all about ones and zeros. It's not really interpretive information. So what, what I like to do is I look at information. One of the cases I worked at was, worked on was a case called Eric Leslie Busby. It's out of Alabama. It's a capital murder case where I was hired by the government. So the prosecution hires myself, and at the time, I don't know if you remember Kevin Levy as well, he was still in the Secret Service, we were, he was part of my task force. Uh, again, private company, still has a migration between law enforcement and private entity. In this case, Eric Leslie Busby, uh, he was accused of murdering a gas station owner. So as the prosecution expert, I looked at the evidence, I realized this kid was innocent. We walked right over to the attorney, his name was John Beck, I said, hey, this kid's innocent, I can't be part of this case testified for the defense in that case, and got an acquittal thir- three times. So there was two mistrials, and the third time we got an acquittal. How I helped in that case was I looked at the cell phone data. We looked at the information of the what's called pattern analysis. So the idea was this person, Eric Leslie Busby, had an argument with this gas station owner over a, a check that he wouldn't cash. Well, when we looked at those records, uh, Eric Leslie Busby was nowhere there. So again, cell phone data called detail records tell you where you're not more so than where you are. The friend who said, yeah, I, I witnessed this, you know, a friend trying to be a friend, we pulled his cell phone data. He wasn't there during that time of the argument during this check. So we know that that was false. And we started looking at the morning of that, that, the murder, and we realized that Eric Leslie Busby couldn't have been at that gas station the way that the government had said. Now, the government went out and hired uh, AT&T, basically, they said, okay, we don't want to use your testimony because we don't like it. So we, they went out and hired an RF engineer. I can't remember his name, but he was recently arrested for meth, uh, possession of meth. Karma's a bitch. And so the idea was he presented information that the prosecutor wanted, you know, sort of a pat on the back type information. So we got him to admit uh, that he was wrong. Uh, in these cases, when you lie or mislead, we know you're going to do it because we know what the evidence is like. So that's, that's an example. You got him to admit it on the stand? 
I understand. Yeah, I understand. So it was acquittal. Third time. First time, we, we, we didn't realize the lies. There were lies. But when we heard him say that, we were prepared. Second time was like some kind of technical. Um, they threw the case out for some technical reason. Uh, and the third time is the third trial is where we got the acquittal. So why, why did the government go ahead with the case when they had other evidence that indicated that, you know, the person wasn't at the location? I think, I think in the world when you deal with um, smaller communities and these uh, hatreds for families that have been around there for decades, this is the explanation I got. George, I'm like you. It's incomprehensible that this could occur. Uh, in this case, I don't know the motive. It had to be personal because the evidence just didn't, didn't jive. It just didn't make sense. So what we did was we looked at the evidence, again, hired by the prosecution, went over the defense, didn't charge him a petty. I didn't want to make this about money and just testified on the defense side because he was innocent. I couldn't bear to see, yeah, he's a local scumbag. It's not my problem. He didn't kill a guy. He's not going right. to be back because of something he didn't do. That's crazy. That's awesome. Oh, sorry, that, that's what's so awesome, though, Gus, about, you know, forensics, like you said, the cases are so much better because it's not, it, it, it's, it's either there or it's not. And that is just, uh, you know, that's something I, <laughs> I definitely do miss about the days of, you know, being an agent when you're doing a forensic case and it comes your way. And the data says what the data says. And to your point, I mean, it, it's, it's so great because, um, you know, you, you uphold a, you know, we, we swear to uphold the Constitution and, and the laws. And when you find someone who is innocent, and I, I think a lot of people forget about that, George. That's a big thing. You know, like a lot of law enforcement out there is really good. We're trying to do the right thing. And we're trying to, you know, figure out what really happened. And, you know, Gus, I you know, commend you. That's a great example of when we can do that. Yep, absolutely. Thanks, Thanks Tom. You know, it, no doubt about it. I, when I, you know, I hear there's all these, you know, if you go on Facebook these days, there's all these cop haters out there. You know, trolling cops, following around, putting on video, all kinds of crazy stuff, right? And, um, you know, I just, when I think about it, I, you know, a lot of times I hear, well, uh, so much about how, you know, bad, bad cops are, even prosecutors, and how people get in trouble. And my experience is the opposite. Like, I haven't seen, like, and I've never been in a case where I thought that the government literally was prosecuting someone that was completely innocent. And so, to hear about it. And then to hear about, you know, that you presented the evidence to the government and then they're like, no, they wanted to go out and get someone else that said something different. And that person gets on the stand and then reverses his testimony and actually admits that he's wrong. You know, it just sounds like a, like a mess, right? It sounds like a circus. And I'm glad the guy got off because it, what, a, what a grave injustice it would be for someone to you know, be found guilty of murder and go to prison for murder, you know, potentially life in prison for something they didn't do. Just absolutely horrible. What's crazy about that too, George, is uh, I think for the listeners out there to understand the relationship between the prosecutor and, and the investigators is such a, it's got to be such a tight thing. You have to trust each other, right? You got to, you got to trust the investigators going to do what they want. They're swearing to things. You got to trust the prosecutors going to interpret the data, right? It's a great check and balance. When you don't have that, it's uh, it's really unfortunate. And, uh, you know, you know, hats off to you guys for doing it, but I mean, it's, it's crazy to not have it. And, uh, at Bico right now, our chief compliance officer, I rec recruited him in. It's my old prosecutor, Matt Perella. I mean, he was a, he was attorney for 21 years, a DA before that. And, you know, we trust each other inherently. It's great to be working with him again. It, it's just crazy how important that, that trust is you know, to have there. So, yeah, Gus, let me ask you, if, you if, if there wasn't computer, the computer forensics in this case, what, what do you think would have happened to this guy? Well, I mean, you can appeal all you want, but the execution date would have been set. He would have been executed. There's no question about it. I'd say, you know, it's a Dateline case. It was a uh, story was done on it. I uh, highly recommend if you want to read a case uh, that just doesn't make, made it, didn't make any sense to any of us. And, and it's corroborated by an active Secret Service agent because Kevin Levy was still in the Secret Service at the time. Uh, he was just part of my, you know, again, the private company contract with the state of Alabama. That was my role. My role was to develop the Alabama Computer Forensics Program. That was my two-year contract. At the same time, I was working with the U.S. Attorney's Office in the same district, Southern District of Alabama. But, you know, in, in this case, what's, what's great about the federal government, especially down there, is that they understood my role as, as an expert. They're the ones that pushed me to become a defense expert. They're the ones that said, you know, when I asked them about it, they said, yeah, why wouldn't you? They have doctors all the time who testify on both sides, psychologists and so I understood that um, that made sense. I'm like, yeah, that makes absolute sense. They said, look, if you, do you, would you lie? No. Would you mislead? No. Then they said, you, you absolutely, you'd be one of the best experts because you don't really care about the fight in the game. You don't care about the opinions and what else was done. You just do your job. So even when I do forensics now, I do a tremendous amount of criminal forensics. I'm, I'm leaving today to go testify in New Mexico on Monday. On uh, Wednesday, I go to Fort Sam Houston to testify in a military case. In both those cases, both criminal cases, 
I don't like to have forensic reports handed to me. I don't like to have uh, explanations handed to me. I just want to do the forensics and determine everything myself. After I do the forensics, then I compare my findings to what else was done in the case. And if it matches, it matches. If it doesn't, then I, there's a little scrutiny there. I have to start asking harder questions. So this is, this is really interesting. During, during the break, you were telling us about this kidnapping case that you worked. Is this something that you can talk about? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so there's, there's quite a few. Uh, you know, two, two examples we'll talk about. One was, one was out of Orlando where, and, and again, another famous case, um, I forget the name of it now, but there was a murder at an airport, uh, a Lakeland Airport there, and the person who committed the murder uh, took the body, dragged the body across state, um, so now you're talking about two phones. So you're talking about the phone that's on the victim and, and the suspect's phone, defendant's phone. And that's what we call shadowing. So we, we notice that in this situation, even when you're not answering your phone, uh, when you pull the call del detail records up, it'll show that the call was basically, it shows forwarded, which means it's going to voicemail, but it'll show where it's tower it's communicating with at that time. So we know that during this period that the phones were shadowing each other. So over a large area, this is, I forget, it was about a 50, 60 mile area because the body's got to be dumped the phones are shadowing. So we know that in that case, even though I was hired by the defense to look at that case, I didn't have any evidence that supported that he did not do it. In that same district, the prosecutor ended up hiring me on the very next cases that they worked. And even to today, they still use me because of the fact they said when I testified for the defense, my professionalism and the fact that I did not lie or mislead, let, you know, they were very, they're got to be aggressive. I understand that. To me, get it, getting punched figuratively in the face is what you expect in court, so it's okay. It doesn't bother me at all. But after that case, the prosecution started using me because of my professionalism in the defense case. So I understood in that case. I looked at all the evidence. There was really nothing to help support the fact that our defendant did not commit that murder and kidnapping. And that kidnapping and murder, which, which uh, really dragged a body across the state of Florida. The other one was Alaska, and that's a unique one because, you know, we talk about how to commit a murder, how to commit a crime. Everybody will tell you, oh, what? you got to turn off that phone, right? got to turn that phone off, but that's an action. So every time you take an action that, that you turn a phone off is an action. So when that person in Alaska, what they did was they kidnapped a person, dragged them to the mountain, somewhere in the middle of the mountains, turned their phone off, dragged the body in the mountains, came out of the mountains, about 25 minutes later, turned the phone back on. That event is a signaling event. So law enforcement could take that gap and say, well, wait a minute, we know that he traveled towards this area. The phone is off for a specific amount of time, 20, 25 minutes, whatever it was. So they calculated where it was. So they knew where the body was. They were able to find the body. So even turning your phone off in that case, a kidnapping case, uh, helps law enforcement determine where the, the body could be. So how often do you think that computer forensics or even more specifically cellular forensics determines the outcome of some of these capital cases? Well, you know, today what's, what's beneficial is when we have a, a user of a phone, even a computer, we know that within their network, their home network, you have Wi-Fi's, you have uh, neighboring Wi-Fi's, you have your known Wi-Fi's, whether it's your Starbucks or your coffee shops. So these all go back to you. So we know that even when we're pulling data from the provider, we have Voice data, meaning you're making calls, SMS data, and data, meaning internet data. So even in those cases, we're able to identify how your phone is being used on the network, even if you're not placing calls, even if you're not texting, but just the fact that it's connecting to the data sources, your feeds. And so we know that right now that almost every single crime I've ever been, crime type, murders, kidnappings, your traditional crimes, all of them involve technology. And so we've moved over into an area where we just immediately capture the environment. So we go to the environment where these cases occur. For instance, Wi-Fi. We want to know the Wi-Fi. We want to know CCTV. We want to know all the ring, your little devices, all your IoT, your Internet of Things, your, your connected devices to the Internet. So we're collecting everything now. So now our expansion in these cases has grown. You know, I feel like every year, I feel like it's, it's double digits, whether it's 10%, 20%. I feel like that growth in the amount of technology that we can use in solving crimes grows by double digits each of these last five years. So what are some of the biggest data breach cases that you worked? And can you tell us how you utilize the technology in those cases to help solve the crime or the offense? Yeah. Well, one of the biggest one I, we had, uh, you're probably familiar with the uh, oil company, Aramco Oil. Aramco Oil is in Saudi. So in 2012, 
we did an examination on a network to determine how the oil company was hacked. We determined 100%. It was me. You determined that, how it was hacked, who hacked it, what country hacked it, and what their intentions were. And that's more of a directed attack. The, the attack on a, I'm going to say, top 20 uh, international airport, can't say the name, that was more because of a network vulnerability. And what they did in that case is they have a system set up with an operating system that is no longer patchable, right? It's end of life. But the system, which is sort of a manifest system, they needed it because it was operational. So instead of upgrading it, they kept it online. Well, as you know, if, you don't, if you're not patching a system that can't be patched, it's, it's an open door. Hackers right. are able to find it without any problem. So that was more because of the system failure. But what we're seeing now is much different. It's more of an industry attack. So instead of going after the big boys, which is still we have the Equifax type attacks or target, they're going after industries such as law firms or real estate companies. So we're seeing a huge attack on these industries because of the wire transactions. And one most recently was a $1.9 million wire transfer that was voluntarily done by this person in this one of these industries uh, thinking that this is the proper uh, transaction to take, but in turn, but the problem was he was wiring it to hackers, not knowing what it was. So, what's your favorite part about doing all this? I mean, is this something that you love? Do you have a, you know, I mean, you've been doing it for a long time, obviously. Um, some people do do things because they're really good at it. Some people do things because they're really good at it and they love it. Or maybe sometimes they just. Love it. But in your case, obviously, you're very good at what you do. Do you? What's your favorite part about cyber forensics? Mine is absolutely travel. I, uh, I'll tell you, as a Greek immigrant coming off the boat through Ellis Island, you know, all my family, all own restaurants, uh, hard workers, I get all that. I just wanted to travel. So, and getting into Secret Service was one of my desires. Hey, you got a little bit of travel here. I was a Fort Lauderdale police officer before that. So it was all, everything that goes with the, with the job. But the travel for what we do with cyber forensics is, is my favorite. You know, like I get a call from Barcelona last year and said, hey, can you come testify? I turn to wife, I go, hey, you want to go to Barcelona? She says, yep. So I calculate how much it's going to cost us to go to Barcelona and say, give them a price and we're in Barcelona. So the trips you get out of doing cyber forensic testimony, cyber forensic exams is from, from Africa, the Middle East, uh, Europe, all over the world. What about your least favorite part of the job? Travel. <laughs> I, I tell you what, my goodness. I, you know, my friends, look, you know, they look at us, right? And, and, you know, I've been a diamond medallion. Well, with, I'm a two million miler with, uh, with Delta. Wow. I'm charter Delta diamond. It doesn't mean crap. Let me tell you something. It doesn't, you can't, you can't. I have saved every single delay for the last two. I just make a screenshot. My wife says she's going to get me on the Today Show to talk about every single ca uh, capture delay. So we have every recorded delay and it's almost it's got to be above 90%, and this is not an exaggeration. So the part that I hate, of course, like you know, getting on that plane, having to deal with delays, having to get to the destination, it's a big problem. Yeah. Yeah, travel can be extremely painful. I want to ask you about mobile devices, and obviously you do a lot of forensics on cellular devices. What do you feel on, on the privacy issue when it comes to mobile devices? I mean, we talk about it on the show a lot. We've had several segments on the show where we've dedicated to just the privacy versus security issue. And when it comes to sell your phones, but what's your take? Yeah, you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two. One is going to be the, the law enforcement side, right? We, we know the San Bernardino, San Bernardino case with terrorism. Yep. There's two sides of this, right? We also understand that your life, your digital shadow is your phone. Everything that you do is with this device, clearly. I mean, there's no time where my hand isn't touching the screen of my uh, iPhone in this case. And I'm always traveling with it. If I don't have my mobile phone... I'm screwed. You know, I need it. I mean, it, it's become such a necessity. I'll take that over a lot of my other needs in life. Uh, for instance, if I have to cut down on coffee, I'll do it. I'd rather have my phone. So, for instance, if you're talking about a mobile device that has data, how much data is stored related to what is you? All of it. So, 100% of what's you is here. You can almost analyze a phone and almost determine a personality of the person using the phone. This is very private. So, the idea that you should have just free access to be able to access a phone when you want I don't know, it's kind of a challenge. Right now what we're seeing is we're seeing even if you have an iOS device that it's coming by default, the inability for forensic tools to connect to it by disabling a USB feature inside of it. So we're seeing that what I predicted, and I'm predicting on your show right now, is that little plug-in on the phone is going away. We're not going to have the ability to connect to these devices. It's going to go away and everything's going to be wireless, charging, wireless, everything. There will be no connectivity to these devices, which is pretty much going to cripple a lot of these carry or these providers, for instance, all your cell phone forensic tool providers, if you can't connect to the phone, it's going to be a challenge. 
But it's not going away because Apple is specifically trying to disable or prevent anyone from ever accessing the phone from a you know, forensic standpoint. It's going to go away because, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm just getting, you know, I'm just, this is more of a question than I'm not stating. It's going away because of, you know, the wireless batteries and, and recharge feature that's going to be forthcoming. Or is that, is that correct? Or are they really trying to make sure that no one can access the phone? No, they really are because again, if you go, if you go look at your, a lot of these phones are now becoming disabled uh, by default inside the settings. So when you get the phone, when you're doing a, a new phone or an update, uh, operating system update, so the iOS 13, I forget one, whichever version we're at right now, uh, the USB uh, connection feature inside of the settings is disabled. So right now, if I were to plug in my phone into uh, one of the forensic tools, um, I could name a lot of them, but I love oxygen, let's say. I love using oxygen forensics. And so if I plug that into oxygen detective, it won't be able to connect or communicate with the phone because it's disabled. So they did that deliberately, so which indicates that the privacy of that device is more important. Now, where, where a lot of people are you know, eliminating that privacy is that they're face ID. So with face ID, um, biometric ID, you, know, you don't have a right. So that Fourth Amendment right to protection, I'm sorry, the Fifth Amendment, which protects you uh, from you know, doing something, providing some digits that would incriminate you. With facial ID or biometrics, it's gone. You don't, they don't need your permission. So I always tell people that, you know, especially with, with iPhones, you should have a pin. You should always have a pin to get in the phone. After that, if you want to use facial recognition for your banking account or Amazon or whatever it is, that's fine. But that main door, that main door to get in the phone, that front door, that should be an ID because that, that really does secure your data. Oh, I think that's good advice. All right, Gus, we're going to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, former Secret Service agent and founder of the security company Cyber Forensics, Mr. Gus Dimitrelos. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. 
You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, former Secret Service agent and founder of the security company Cyber Forensics, Mr. Gus Dimitrello. So, Gus, yeah, we were talking about a, a lot of stuff on the break here. I don't know how much time we're going to have to get this all in. We're going to have to have it back next week. I'm with me. I appreciate you coming on, man. So, look, how do, how do the bad guys use technology to hide their activities? What do you see going on? Well, what they're doing now, they're staging. We're seeing uh, like a murder case uh, that we had recently where the, the person who's going to commit the murder, so the Sicario type hit, they, they grab the girlfriend's phone, they switch phones, so their phones are with somebody. They're in use, basically. They're being uh, shown as a different location. So what they're doing is they're staging their activities. They understand technology can help them get off on these crimes. And so that's one way we see them using technology. Certainly, we talked about the other ones before, which is turning the phone off, uh, uh, or not answering the phone, but those, those are all traceable events. So now we're saying we're staging. And then there's the burner phones, which is they're always going out and grabbing a phone, uh, just a pay, you know, just kind of pay, you know, pay to play type phone. They buy it, use it, set it up, set the person up. We had a murder case out of DC where the you know, person went and bought the phone, uh, burner phone would communicate with this other person, set them up to meet them up at a restaurant, kill them using the burner phone. But we were able to solve that case because in that scenario, the person with the burner phone had the burner phone with them while they're using their phone. So it was, again, they're shadowing their own activity. Uh, so they were using a burner phone, which communicates with the cell, cell tower. Their phone communicates with the same cell tower. And the traveling to the murder scene, uh, you know, it really, it really got them into a, a really bad situation where they were found guilty, and they should have been found guilty because they did commit the murder. Uh, the last thing is these burner apps. So burner apps now is the latest and greatest. So if you look at now, if you look at some of these apps, they're called TextNow apps. Uh, we see that a lot. Uh, where they're using these text dial apps. So you're getting a phone number. It's an application on your phone. So it's not even a phone. It's just an app where you're able to use it just like we're talking right now. You can use it as a phone. You can use it to text. Uh, you, can, you can call people. So these, these texting apps are the latest and greatest. So a couple of things. So as far as staging goes, does the, mo- the more effective you know, way that they're trying to you know, use this is, but they have to trust somebody, right? I mean, it basically gives somebody the phone and somebody uses it to make it look like, no, it's not just that the phone is in a physical location where maybe the phone's at their house and they're out committing these heinous crimes, but actually it's somewhere else and someone else using it to make it look like they have the phone and there's some way, you know, there's two different ways that they're trying to do it is, is what I understand. Is that correct? Yeah, correct. So first, it's the Lil, Lil Boosie's a rapper. He's a fam- kind of a semi-famous rapper. Lil Boosie, I did the murder investigation on his old group out of Baton Rouge. So the DA hires me there to testify. Again, very well-known case. Google it. Uh, you can hear my t- see my testimony in the newspaper. What they did there is, you know, Lil Boosie was on house arrest. He has his ankle monitor. He's at the house 100%, no question about it. He's hiring people to commit the murder. So you had uh, you know, a group of individuals who went out who said, yeah, we, you know, we went out and we, he paid us 2500 bucks to kill this guy. Uh, Marlo Mike and so they went out and killed this guy so you can see the phone movement so they're, 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 what they did in that case is we, they were trying to show that Lil Boosie was part of this murder meaning he paid people so they were all at the house so we show this you know they're at the house they're staging at the house and then but what they did was they traveled from the house to the murder scene and then back and enough of those individuals use their phone so we used one call from one individual one call or text from another and it all came back to Lil Boosie's house. So after the murder, they all went back to Lil Boosie's house. We know that for a fact because he has an ankle monitor 100% of the time. He's there, cell phone's there. People are saying, yeah, he paid us. Uh, and then it, it, eventually they got a tattoo. One of the guys got a tattoo that said, hey, Boosie, who's next? And with the AK-47 in the middle. And that was taken, that tattoo was taken, was, was actually put on two weeks after the murder. And because the phone, which in this case was an iPhone, had location services enabled, that photograph had what's called EXIF data. As you and I, we all know what that means, and the data behind the picture. It shows where the picture was taken with, within feet, and where was, it, where, was that, where was that tattoo being put on? was inside the living room of Lil Boosie's house. So we had all this evidence against Lil Boosie, uh, and all these guys got convicted because of these staging events uh, that we were able to prove. Yeah, so the staging event can actually work against them. You know, yeah, and that gets work against them. Yeah, right, mm-hmm. right. And so can these burner phones be, be you know, located and found and identified 
in any other way except for you know tracing it against the person's own phone. So you're bouncing off the same tower every single time. You, you know you, you travel like you know for 30 minutes and it's the, your Bruno phone sitting right next to your own phone, and it's you know easy to easy to trace. But any other way to do that? Yeah, I think, yeah what we did in uh, in that case, the the video tape, the video footage. A lot of times when you buy a phone, you're still going to the store. We still depend on the traditional evidence of you know CCTV type data to show that you went to a store or that um, the the card you used you purchased with you know, another credit card, yeah. uh, you know, it's, but listen, if you want to hide it, if you want to get somebody to buy a phone for you, use the phone, as long as you don't, you know, criminals will still use that phone as in a normal capacity. They'll still call the same people, same numbers. So you link it through the numbers, the usage of the phone, but ultimately, you know, it's still, it's going to make the, the crime a lot harder to solve. So how about cryptocurrency crimes against individuals? I mean, you uh, are currently contracted to assist the Alabama Security Commission with these types of crimes. What's your role there, and why is the problem growing? This is Tom's space. He works in cryptocurrencies all the time. What, what, what are you doing in that space? Yeah, absolutely, Tom. And, and, and as you know, right now, if you were to get online, a lot of times it's the consumer. So the consumer right now sees gold, silver, crypto. They'll get on the Internet, and they'll Google. They'll basically research. They'll say, hey, I want to find a CD for my, for my grandson. So we know this one individual at Texas. He, you know, he wired, it was almost $700,000 for a CD. It was a bank. I won't say the name. I think one of us worked for them. It wasn't me. And so what they did was they Google these terms. So if you Google, let's just make an example of you know, JP Morgan CD, right? So you Google that, you're not necessarily getting JP Morgan CD. You'll get these other websites that are popping up. So a lot of trusting individuals that are, you know, they're, they're really going after these uh, uh, searches on the internet because now they're becoming a little more internet I'm not call it savvy, but they're using the internet a little more. And so they look up these cryptocurrency purchases, whether it's Bitcoin or uh, any other type of purchase, and they're going to sites they think they're buying a, a very true investment, but in fact, it's not. So what we're doing is we're protecting the citizens, uh, in this case of Alabama. We, Alabama does about 25% of all cryptocurrency investigations in the country. Very aggressive. Wow. Uh, and, and these types of crimes because they're trying to protect the consumers. And so, you know, if you look up something such as uh, uh, cryptocurrency or silver or gold and you think you're finding the source because it has somewhere in the metadata of the keyword a name of a bank or a name of an investment or a name of an investor, uh, usually it's going to be fraudulent. So what Alabama does, it goes after these fake websites. That's all they are. It's basically a bunch of websites that are created in Costa Rica or other locations and a bunch of people who sit in a room and just are so good at the SEO practices, the black hat SEO practices, meaning creating a website so that when you're doing a Google search right now for cyber forensics, you go on a website, I usually come up usually number one or page one. Because I've been doing this long enough. But there's a lot of companies up there that show up from India. So even though you're doing a search in the US, they're really good at diverting your interest or your searches to somewhere else. And that's what's going on with the cryptocurrency crimes. I'll tell you, hey, George, on the crypto side, what's interesting about it is, um it's actually easier to track the money where it goes because you can see the public ledger. Whereas, you know, in the old days, you'd have to maybe see the banks once it goes offshore. You've got to, you know, um, subpoena records, possibly do a mutual legal assistance treaty, letter rogatory, something like that to get the, the records. But the issue with cryptocurrency is when you send it, it's gone. I mean, it's instant. So it's not like you can try to stop it from one bank hopping to another bank to another bank. So it's an interesting thing from a forensics perspective, kind of easier to see where it all goes, uh, but um, harder to stop it because it's, it's instant. So pretty, pretty interesting. And then um, obviously there's, you know, AML, KYC, and all that stuff coming with the, with the more legitimate areas. But yeah, it's got to be pretty interesting to you guys because it's a totally different way of tracking the funds. Yep, correct. Yep. So Gus, uh, you, you're obviously dealing with uh, mobile phones all the time in your job. I'd like to get your opinion about something. What's your favorite uh, texting app or even voice app, both text and voice app, on a phone uh, for privacy reasons, right? So if you're, if you're interested in privacy, what are the what are your favorite apps that that you that you use on the phone? Uh, hand, hands down for me, even now when we do investigations. So if I'm doing an investigation, I want to make a call. I want to see who's on the other end of that phone. I love your your. It's called Text Now, or these text. If you look up Text Now, these apps are they're basically instant apps. So you download them, you pick an area code, it gives you a number, then you can use that phone to make a call. But if I want to communicate with you, like for instance, you, me, maybe Tom, all of us, we're all Signal is my favorite, no doubt. Signal to me, um, I've been using it for quite a long time because it allows you it's sort of that Mission Impossible. You got thirty seconds to read this message and it burns away, and it does burn away, right? We've all done forensics, and so if you have that set, it's just not 
possibly recover the data that's gone. And so as long as you have, you, you like Signal, uh, certainly people love WhatsApp, it's very popular, but Signal is my favorite way to communicate. When we're doing data breach investigations, what I do is I set up these groups. Uh, we set them up in Signal so because we don't trust the hackers and that, what, what data they have access to. We know that WhatsApp you can access via computer. We know that WhatsApp you can access um, or email you can access if a data breach has occurred. We don't like communicating via email or WhatsApp. We like communicating via signal during a data breach because we don't know what the hackers have access to. Right, right. How does, how does signal compare to Wicker, or do you have an opinion on that you know, in terms I, I of forensic trading? Yeah, right now it's just you stick with one, right? That's the first one I got. So Wicker, fine. There's nothing wrong. I mean, again, I have nothing to say about uh, Wicker other than I've been with Signal for so long and I just maintain it. Right. And so how does social media help in your cyber investigations? I mean, it always plays some kind of role in every, almost every aspect of life. I'm sure cyber investigations is something that you, you, you know, use social media all the time, I would imagine. Yeah, we love it. Uh, yeah, we call it a Kim Kardashian effect. I love it. It's the, you know, we, we come up with these terms, right? And, but it's really this sort of this ostentatious society. It's look at me society. I, I love it. I'm not on it. I don't do it. You, I mean, certainly you are. You're all over. You're well-loved. Everybody knows you. For me, my, my focus has been very simple. Keep it on cyber. But with our social media investigations, so I, I personally, what I did is I got so busy that I handed those off to my wife. And she loves, she's really good at investigating Instagram, uh, Facebook, uh, <laughs> Twitter. So she does all of that. So when I testify a lot, there's a social media component uh, we like so we have some certain software that we like that that collects it. So we'll look at social media because it's important in more of the civil cases, uh, drinking and driving with a murder, uh, where you have partying, you have that that sort of aspect where somebody somebody is using social media to display their lies. And usually when we use social media, we're displaying sometimes we're displaying because we shouldn't be displaying. And so we use that those parts in our investigation to show the other components of evidence, not necessarily. Uh, you know, location or evidence of a crime, but a part of what you are charged with. So as we move more towards cloud data storage, what do you see as the biggest threats to your data being stored in the cloud-based uh, uh, infrastructure as, as opposed to like, you know, or, or maybe like, like Gmail or iCloud, you know, some of these things that you use with your iPhone. Uh, what's, the, what's the biggest threats there, you think? I think we don't. We no longer have control of the data. So right now, I love it. It's great for my company. We, we love that that aspect. All our cases are stored online. Uh, we have multi-factor set up. We have alerting set up. We have as much uh, alerting as we can. The problem is, as a normal user, let's say Office 365, what we're seeing now is that the hackers are going through these databases. So let's say they go through uh, Equifax database or Target database, and your username and password, your username and password, the two credentials, are in these databases. It's a book. So basically, it's digital data that's stored somewhere, and you have access to it. Billions of combinations. So what the hackers are doing now is they're taking your username and your password, and they're just going to every single site, bank site, email site, cloud data site, and they're plugging it in. But what we have in that, uh, that issue, the issue is that because you don't have multi-factor setup, if you don't have two-factor where you're getting a code back to your phone or using a, an application to give you a code, that means that the hacker is getting into your cloud account. Now, what they're doing with that information, like they're doing with the, with the hacks I'm dealing with now, the, the civilian hacks, the industry hacks, the law firms, real estate companies, is that once they're in your account, they're setting up rules. And this is, these are real cases that occur every single month that I investigate. So they're setting up a rule that says, if a email has the words wire transfer, delete it. Now, where does it go? It goes to your recycle bin. It's still there. So the hackers are coming in the middle of the night, going into your recycle bin, going to your trash, pulling that email out, replying back to the recipient of that email, the receiver, and replying to it. And what they're threading, they're threading themselves into these emails. So I wrote a little, a little article on LinkedIn. I posted it to, to, to explain what threading was. It's a term I came up with where the hackers are now threading themselves. They're not ransomware anymore, not with cloud data, or they're not cryptoware. It's all about threading. So they're getting into your accounts and they're waiting. They're waiting. There are thousands and thousands of accounts and we're finding the same MO that your username and password that you use, if you're using the same username and password across all of your accounts, they're exploiting all your accounts. And they're doing it because they're threading themselves into your lives. You just don't know they're there. What do you think is more secure? Apple devices are, 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 are more secure than Microsoft Windows? or what do you I, think, think? 
I think the, the problem we have now is browsers. I, I see it all the time. Uh, the browser is the vulnerabilities. So whether you have a, you know, neither one, you know, Apple, uh, Windows, we don't really care about the system because what, what the hacker is doing is that your browser is storing data. So there's no browser security. So right now, you know, we have software, even us, we come up to a computer within a microsecond, we're able to rip all of your uh, browser data off. Your browser stores your usernames, your passwords, your credit cards, everything about you is in your browser. So we have no securities for browsers now. So whether it's Safari or Firefox, Chrome, these are three examples. A lot of your data is stored in there, and that's that's across all platforms, Apple and Windows. So we, we don't we don't see a security uh, benefit either one. Now, mechanically or technically speaking, I certainly love Apple products. I love the encryption. I love the iPhone. Uh, I like that they vet their application. So I do prefer Apple for myself. But then again, I've always been an Apple guy. So with all that's going on in the in the forensics industry. Where do you see it going over the next five years? What's going to happen? What do you? What do you? What are your predictions? I think I think I, I kind of have a hunch here, and I, I, I you know we remember early on where we we know the BIOS, you know, chipset BIOS stands for basic input output system. It's a little chip on you when your computer starts up. You see a little language, a little instruction, a tiny operating system. When when we we, we looked at some of the breaches historically, um, even you know, more than a dozen years ago, there was a was a it was a router. Remember the blue Linksys routers that we all were they're very popular? Well, the Air Force had put an order. You remember the uh, case where the this order of these routers, there was an extra chip put on these routers? Do you remember that case? Yeah, yeah. Long time ago. So imagine how long ago that was. So I believe right now that the chips, the chipset, is going to be our biggest issue. These hmm. these chipsets, because you cannot get into some of these, the enclaves are so encrypted, you, you have no idea... Because you could put so so many instructions in one of those that you have no idea. So I think that the biggest problem we're going to face in the future is a kill command. So basically, whoever's designing these chips won't name the country, won't name the uh, company. But the idea that they can create a device on your main board, whether it's a phone or computer, that kills a device. Now think about this. Cars, ATMs, planes, phones, computers, everything has them on the main board. So the, the, the problem I think we're going to see in the future is this technology, this ability to create an operating system on your device that can either steal your data, like we know with the Hawaii cell phones, we know the spinet, this, this cellular network that was created to steal data and listen in. But imagine that just a simple device that it just sits there, it just waits. And the moment that somebody decides to shut the device down or divert data from the device, they can do it at, at any time. Yeah, so that's like a built-in logic bomb on every device. Yep. Just about, basically. And they can just shut it off whenever they want. It's part of the infrastructure and the chipset. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's really interesting. I haven't heard that one before. Gus, man, we're out of time. I, thanks for so, so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And it was great having you. I hope you come back often. we got a lot to talk about. Yeah, you sound great. John, guys, have a great day. Yeah, great job, man. Thanks. Yeah. All right, folks, it's time to go. But before we do... I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.